We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, GabFest fans. This is a very special episode of the Political GabFest. We celebrated our 15th anniversary with a fantastic live show on December 9th. It was a night of reminiscing, looking back on past mistakes, and delivering fresh kindnesses. And here's the podcast edition of that wonderful show. So happy listening and happy new year. We'll be back with a regular show next week. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 9th, 2020, the 15th anniversary edition. We are live on Facebook and YouTube. We wish we were live in a theater somewhere, but we're in our living rooms. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm at home in my living room in Washington, D.C. I am joined by, by, by my beloved, beloved co-hosts of all these years from New York City, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Hello, David. And from New Orleans, yet she's found a yet another new, a new place to go, not a new haven, a New Orleans, Emily Bazelon of Yale University Law School and the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, John and David. Did you guys get your Trump pardon in the mail today? I got mine. It was great. Uh, <laughs> what crime would you be uh, guilty of that you would need pardoning for? Uh, I think, as we'll discover in the course of the show, it's probably sanctimony and stupidity. What about you? <laughs> Luckily, those are not in the criminal statute. Some petty larceny, you know, just to spice up the day. Emily? <laughs> Uh, let's see. You don't see. have to. It's okay. No. <laughs> You're greed, on the record, avarice, impatience, vanity, <laughs> um, irritation. Do you know, uh, charity, chastity, prudence, and hope, um, that uh, my mother had this, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, my mother had this friend who was the youngest of three girls. The first girl was named Faith, the second one was named Hope, and the third one was named Brenda. <laughs> 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 Anyway, <laughs> that's Someone the eighth deadly sin. Uh, so we are at our quinceanera. It's it, the 15th anniversary is the crystal anniversary, which is appropriate because we on the GabFest, we try to be clear and sharp like crystal and we break crystal when we occasionally hurl it at each other as even happy families do. But tonight we're here to celebrate, hopefully not too self-indulgently, the longest and most satisfying venture, at least of my professional career. Um, week after week after week, the three of us show up in studios, on stage, on Zoom, to have a conversation among dear friends. And it, we began podcasting. The year podcasting was coined, apparently. We were brought together by our former colleague and godfather of Slate Podcasting, Andy Bowers. We are still joyfully here. And I'm so glad to be here with you guys for a night of nostalgia, for a nostalgia trip. We're happy to be with you, too. And we look forward to someday seeing you actually in person and our audience actually in person. Tonight, we're gonna, it's going to be sort of a normal structure. We're going to reminisce about some of our favorite GabFest moments, some issues that have obsessed and fascinated us and about what we learned from each other. Then we will do some cocktail chatter. Plus, we're going to take your questions live. So wherever you're watching this, you can put your questions directly in the chat 
uh, Facebook, YouTube, and and we will pick them up. So we're also doing something special for this 15th anniversary special show, which is that we have a partner, the Winemaker Series, and we're going to be tasting three carefully selected wines from Round Pond Estate, one for each segment of the show tonight. And we are really happy that hundreds of you are going to be able to taste those wines from home along with us. Can we, just before we get into the the series, can we just for a moment paint the picture of what the first room was in which we did the show? Briefly. So for those of you at home, so imagine you have a TV tray. That's the size of the desk on which we had these three microphones planted. And they were in a conference room, which I've said it before, I'll say it again, was the saddest chair museum in America. It had like 30 different chairs and all of them in their last exhausted breath before they totally collapsed. And that's where we did the show for uh, years. So we're going to talk about what's happened over 15 years, some of which what happened on the show and some of which just happened in the world. So what has changed? We are a political show. John, what has changed in politics? What are the fundamental things that have changed in politics from the time we started this back in in 2005? What's changed in politics? We've learned that so much was part of an agreement. And that agreement required everybody to kind of agree to it. And it turns out the power of that agreement can be um, challenged across so many different areas. And that it doesn't just take one president who chooses to not heed to that agreement, but that you can have an entire party, which once was the standard keeper of a lot of those agreements, not think that they mean so much anymore. And that, you know... All the rules that I covered when I first came to Washington in 1995, so many of them are up for grabs. We're about to head into an amazing period of redefinition, or maybe not. But um, uh, so I guess the just the, the the extent to which so much was an agreement and and how that has been revealed. You, this is interesting because I mean Emily, I'm going to ask you sort of the legal end of that. But can I take can before I ask you that can I actually because John, you took approached it from the vector of the presidency. I'll approach it from the vector of sort of the citizenry, which I, is that I feel like Jonathan Rausch had this wonderful piece. He's an Atlantic writer, maybe five years ago, where he pointed out a really significant number of Americans didn't believe in politics anymore, that they fundamentally didn't trust the process that was politics, the idea of compromise, the idea that they were you negotiated in partnership with a, with a, a loyal opposition and people gave some and got some um, because there was so – what had happened was that there was uh, so much – cynicism about the system because people were doing like their lives weren't great but also people had just become divided from each other that you you so consumed you so lived in a world of people like you that people who were not like you had become quite threatening and alien and and in some cases you know not worth not equal to you not not legitimate i think when you have citizens when you have a and that that when Roush wrote the piece, I think he was saying it was like 30% of Americans. I think today you'd probably pull it and you'd find a much higher percentage of people who basically don't believe in the political compact. And when you have a huge, and most of those people are on the right, not all of them, but most of them are on the right. And when you have that much distrust in a political system, I, I just don't see how it can operate in the long term. Emily, do you want to take it from a legal perspective? Like, what do you think the biggest shift is that there? I'm I mean, I'm not sure the biggest shifts are legal, actually. In some ways, I don't think, you know, we've had huge things happen. I mean, we had the legalization of same-sex marriage, enormous 
change for our civil rights and changes in people's lives that are very real. When you think, though, about the kinds of political divide you're describing, though, I don't actually think it's the laws that have changed. I mean, this has become a cliche to trot out at this point about the Trump presidency, but it's really the set of norms when you talk about agreement and social compact. I wonder, though, so when we started the show in 2005, George W. Bush was president, correct? That is a true fact. Correct. Yes, yes. Are you trying to establish Ladies a pattern Ladies and gentlemen, leading here? political analyst of It's the just age. amazing the things I get wrong. Emily uh, So um, when you think about going back to George W. Bush's presidency, I do wonder how much the fact that these sort of norms of agreement of like the rules of the road still appearing to operate was masking some actually very deep divisions. I mean, when you think about, you know, the, uh, the Iraq War, the abuses, the torture that took place at that time, the deep divisions over whether to do anything about inequality and poverty, which were beginning to be bigger problems then. Then I start to wonder if there's actually more of a continuum, and it was just that people observed niceties more on each side, and so we didn't see it. I'm not sure I myself agree with that thesis, but let's put it out there for a moment. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, can't you have both? I mean, in other words, you can have one set of roiling problems that are bigger than we knew, and then you can have the death of, of agreement and norms. Um, and they're connected, but um, they don't... Um, I think they can both, they can both exist. Um, I think the power to blow through a lot of those norms, the propulsive force behind it is the, the connection that those who felt upset with the political system the connection they felt to, to President Trump and still feel to him surely must be in part inflamed, although then we can get into a conversation about why there's the adhesion to President Trump that there is, but is inflamed by some of those issues that you are arguing perhaps were, you know, thundering beneath the surface, but that weren't as much of our, our public dialogue, although they were they were kind of part of our public dialogue, but... I mean, sometimes I think it's a difference in degree. And right now it feels like a difference in kind. I mean, I don't think the out, well, the outgoing Bush administration did not behave in this fashion. It was different, right? Because it wasn't the end of a one-term presidency when President Obama became president. This I feel certain of. And you're nodding affirmatively. But so in that sense, it's different. But it's still, I just can't imagine those politicians, those elected officials, those appointed officials behaving in this way. And so... This moment does feel like a different in kind, and yet there are ways in which I think the Republican Party was stoking the division. It just didn't quite understand how big the embers were that then have burst into flame. Yeah. I mean, this is this goes back to the David Plotz's favorite thesis, which is that the most important election of our lifetimes was in 1992, and George H.W. Bush should have won, and that would have potentially prevented the Republican Party from going in this disastrous direction. But we can save that for another year. I want to talk about uh, something that's near and dear to me, which is something that we've changed our thinking on because of each other. And let me go first on this because I have something queued up. I've been listening back to some of our favorite bits. Jocelyn pulled some of them. And I want to play this incredible moment back from 2014. I actually think this is the greatest moment in GapFest history. And it's uh, I'm embarrassed at myself and incredibly impressed at Emily. And I was completely wrong. She was absolutely right. 
and I learned a lot and it's stuck with me. And so it's, it dates back to 2014. And the backstory is that a woman named Deborah Harrell had been arrested for endangering the life of her daughter. She worked at McDonald's. Her daughter had played on a laptop at McDonald's while her mom worked. Then the laptop was stolen. And the daughter asked if she could play on a playground instead. So the mom gave her daughter a cell phone and let her play on the playground. And while this child was playing alone, another parent saw the daughter and called the cops. So we discussed this. We started off by agreeing. We all felt rage at the situation. And we talked a bit. But we pick up this clip right now as I was commenting that the playground wasn't the worst option for a kid to uh, be there for. And the clip is about five minutes long, so bear with it, because I, I think it really, you know, Emily, congratulations. <laughs> it doesn't seem like the worst place to leave right. somebody, better than leaving them indoors without, yeah, or not around have other looked, people. Have we looked at the statute in, in, in South Carolina about whether it would have been endangerment to leave her home alone all day? Well, the statute in South Carolina, like the statute everywhere, is very vague. It's yeah. about, you know, being reasonable, uh, providing reasonable supervision under the circumstances, which is always what these laws say. So, like, if you leave, you know, I have definitely left my 11-year-old home for some amount of time. And what the jokes about, well, how much, how far long could that last for before you get in trouble? There's no answer to that question because it's all very discretionary from the point of view of the state. We don't really need to get to this because it's been made. The point has been made. But one reason why everyone's so outraged is, oh, what if the child had been abducted? And of course, we just have to point out there are so few stranger abductions in this country, as you as you might as well say, none. There are not none, but there are just so few. One, someone calculated that if you leave a child alone in a car, the child would have to wait there for <laughs> 750,000 years before the child would be abducted by a stranger. So this is where it well, gets back it's to so the- much more. Right. It's so much more dangerous to drive around with your kid in the car just based on the number of car accidents than it is to leave a child alone in the park. Doesn't this go back to Emily's original point about race and class, which is that it's not the thing itself for which the mother was arrested, but it was it was tip of the iceberg. So if the kid's being left alone in a park all day, then untold horrible other things are a part of her life, too. That that sign of you don't have discrete negligence that it's. Can we also say. What person called the police on oh, this kid? Oh, like, no, no, no. This is, on. oh, good. This is where we're going to have a fight. This is so awesome. My feeling this about is awesome. that person, whoever he or she is, was that you could ask with concern what's going on, and then maybe you try and help. How is calling the police helping oh, instead of totally like wrong. maybe seeing oh, if oh, there's some way Emily, you could help supervise this is or where there's some smug, other private resolution This is resolution where your smug you self-righteousness offer. ends. Because <laughs> I, I wanted to pose this question to you guys. You are at a, Let's say you go to a playground. You go there in the morning with your child. You go there. You, you hang out. You see a kid playing alone. You go back. At lunchtime, you left something at the park. You go back, check. Oh, the kid is still there playing alone. There's not really, doesn't seem to be attached to any adults. You go back in the evening. The kid is still there playing alone. It is, would be bizarre, bizarre in this world not to ask yourself questions about this child. Yeah. Well, bizarre I didn't say not, not to, to talk to the child. David. And bizarre when the child either. tells you her mom is at work or is vague about it, not to think, like, maybe I have a responsibility yeah. to do something. Well, there's a middle ground. To call the police, David, that's call, the part that I'm arguing what, with. I am with you, you up go, until what, that. You, to try to you talk assume, to the parent to see what's well, happening. No, you assume that the police are, you assume the police are, I assume, in this society, maybe I'm wrong, the police are kind of the good guys. They're going to help sort it out, make sure the kids Why are Why do you assume that? Well, I tell my what, children never to speak to the police if they can possibly avoid it. The police cause trouble. 
Oh my, oh my god. god. That is the oh. most interesting thing I've ever learned no, about I'm you. I'm completely really serious about that. The police are, you treat the police with the utmost care and you try to keep them as far away from your life as you possibly can. That's so interesting, Emily. That is what? so interesting. That's how That's I feel about you lie, you lie to the police when the police <laughs> We have, have to have a show on that, at, on that entire uh, subject. I do not think in a situation where you are worried about an unsupervised kid that calling the police is any kind of wise move unless you think there is evidence of oh. criminality oh in my danger. Gosh. If you think a kid is being abused, that you might a, call the Department of Children's Services. Of, I would of, never call the police the kind on of a kid per- in this paranoia, situation. Anti, I would try to paranoia, which is, Paranoia, you're, you're, yeah. You're apparently, no, you're vindicated in this case, but the, the wrong that was done here was done by the cops. It wasn't done by the parent who called the cops. I totally disagree. I think this is exactly a situation of how we don't have enough just private trying to talk to people and work problems out in this society. And everybody goes straight to the red alert alarm system and to government authority instead of trying to just ask a simple question and talk to someone and find out what's going on. The kid says, sorry, John, the kid says, my mom is at work. Five minutes ago, by the the way, kid says the mom's at work because it's just a convenient adjective that I keep. It's like lodged in a corner <laughs> yeah, of my yeah, brain. So, so whenever Emily says something, I just, I just say smug. It doesn't have anything to do with the content of what you said. The, the, okay, good. The, the uh, <laughs> I now oh, you, you inter- you've, you've, oh, you've I broken him. the circuit. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Couldn't they- Are we back? We're Hello, back. dear listeners. Emily's, the scorching heat of Emily's take destroyed <laughs> the internet for, for 10 minutes. It was good because I crawled into a hole and um, lashed myself. So the reason that I felt so sure that calling the police was a really poor choice for dealing with that kind of incident was all the reporting I've done in cities where people, where things go wrong when people call the police. So I can remember whose face I was thinking about when I said all of that. And the reporting I've done since then has only borne that out. And of course, not in that clip, but elsewhere in that show, we talked about race and the fact that when people, when white people call the police on black people, that obviously tends to be particularly egregious and harmful or has a higher risk of turning out that way. And that is a lesson we have learned over and over again in the years since. I have no idea what I was saying. I think I was speaking in voice for you about some earlier point you'd made about race and class. Because when I heard what I said, I thought, huh? Anyway, so you would, whatever point you made earlier was good enough that I was repeating it. Um, well, I'm, anyway. you know, I'm deeply embarrassed by what I said and uh, how condescending and obnoxious i was uh although that condescension and obnoxious i guess i guess is part of the show um but man you were right emily i'm sorry you were absolutely right and i was wrong and uh, i'm glad i listened to you sometimes so <laughs> so i'm gonna change the subject yeah. to something that i was wrong about or that i learned from you which is that Early in the reporting on campus sexual assault, I was much more taken with getting the stories of victims, especially women, and not thinking very much about the rights of people who are accused, and particularly making sure that you've done everything you can as a reporter to find out the other side of the story, even if you don't think it's right that you've gone to the person who's accused of assault and make sure that they have a chance to respond. 
And David, you impressed that on me, both on the show and also as the editor of Slate. And I feel deeply grateful to you for that because I think it saved me from mistakes I might have made. Um, and obviously the you know, story that unraveled at UVA, whatever that was later in the middle of all that, was the biggest example. I like to think I wouldn't have been that reporter without you, but you definitely helped make sure I was not that reporter. So thank you for that. Thanks. And this is why these guys are so great to be with and think with out loud and why it's always been so great to have an audience that mostly, <clears throat> I'd say super, super, super high percentage of our audience um, and certainly 100% of our devoted audience allows, you know, the fumbling, occasionally, pretty occasionally overheated debate to exist without, uh, you know, allows room for all of that. And that's that's why it's so great to have these debates with you two. I want to mention two qualities that uh, I admire in each of you. Qual favorite quality in each of you. Um, my favorite quality in you, John, is that uh, as a, as a gabfester, not as a human being, but that you're very soulful. You're sneaky soulful. You're like a super soulful person, and I mean, you're a very weird person, um, which doesn't come across, I think, as much on the gabfest. But like in your life, you're like a like a really distinctive sort of your your distinctive self. But you have a kind of like like a heart and soulfulness that is. Um, it's beautiful. It's like really beautiful. And sometimes it, you know, it's not always out on the gap fest cause you're so, you're also being like the keen analyst that you are and talker that you are, but it, that soulfulness is wonderful. And Emily, for you as a gap fester, not again, not as you in your human, human qualities uh, are, are magnificent in all sorts of other ways, but I have never met someone who is so clear about things. Like I, anything you explain, you explain and it stays explained. It like you start a sentence, you finish the sentence. If I start a sentence, it might or might not finish. I might go somewhere else with it. And you like they there's the people used to say that about Hillary Clinton, like that every paragraph made sense when she spoke. And you have that quality. It's like you when you understand something, and first of all, you understand almost everything, but when you understand it, you explain it so well. And it's that is rare. Very rare quality to have. So I feel so, like thank John has taught me that you're supposed to be good at taking compliments and like figure out how to bask in them. And I just still have trouble. But thank you. I deeply appreciate that. Um, so my favorite thing about John on the show is the way he doesn't let us in our knee jerk way. <laughs> Um, discount the counter arguments for whatever point is being made, especially if it's a political, politically or ideologically divisive point. He forces me to think about why my, you know, liberal preconceptions might be totally wrong and really think it through and like holds us to that. And I think it's because, John, you have this deeper quality of combining your analytical rigor with this really enormous heart that tends to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but without being a chump, you know, like in the wake of Obama's book, where we're all sort of imagining an Obama that had like 15% less chumpiness, like, you know, you're sort of that person. That, I can't handle this. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to pay it back to both of you, even though I know you have one more for David, but um, so Emily, back to you. Watching you um, report, and particularly on the things you report about and the way you do, you know, I I go around to a lot of places. I spend a lot of time on the road. I, you know, interview a lot of people. But um, 
I just, you're watching you report is a marvel and having, you know, over the years talk to you about the things you're reporting and listen to you wrestle with these things and the number of calls you make and the places you go and the people you care about um, and telling the story is just, it's a really, that's what I was trying to say uh, when we were on Colbert is, you know, in my other life, I I think about the way you report and it makes my work, I hope, better, or at least it tells me how I'm not doing it as well. And and David, there is a kind of question I ask now, and I think the kids at the dinner table know this is when to stop listening to me. <laughs> but it's um, something I hold like central to my career after 2005, when I came to Slade and when we started this, which is thinking about questions and questioning things in just like this whole other way than I ever did before in the previous 15 years of journalism before I came to Slate. Turning questions around in that way, you know, in sort of like a Rubik's Cube is, which I do, you know, do a lot now, totally all comes from you. I mean, I'm, there's other people too, but I associate it most. Stop, stop while you're ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it with me. <laughs> I'm going to add about David that David makes the show by being willing to say things that most people are, are afraid to express out loud because they might be totally wrong or they might really offend someone. And without the crazy uncle buying Bitcoin, um, which I think was your phrase when we were on Colbert, like the show loses all of its provocative edge. And it's it's not easy. Like you have taken a lot of criticism over the years for things that you've said, but without that willingness to get out on a limb and sometimes actually saw it off, uh, the show is just so much less interesting and urgent and sticking in with people during the week because you make us again. It's like about making sure the arguments are solid, but you're you're just willing to take chances that we. Um, we only tentatively venture after you, and it's essential. All right. Well, let's move on. That was humbling. That was humbling and very beautiful, and we are deeply grateful. Now I don't need to go to my own funeral <laughs> or to your funerals. So let's go to Cocktail Chatter. Um, so each of us had a chatter we were going to share on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert as part of our celebration but that discussion got so lively with Colbert around corruption and pardons that we didn't get a chance to share it there. So let us share those lost chatters now. John, what's your chatter? Um, so my chatter was when I was looking up pardons and the history of pardons and going back and looking at the delicate, delicate, super delicate dance between Nixon and Ford. And um, Al Haig goes over to, who's chief of staff for Nixon, goes over to see Ford, and he's got a list of six options for Nixon about what he might do, including pardoning himself. But number six was that um, that Ford, would he be, were he to become president, would then pardon Nixon. And Ford said, you know, said, Al, I'm an interested party. I can't talk to you about this. So this is not my chatter. But Ford, when no one was watching, told Al Haig to go away. It's just a reminder that occasionally people, when you could do something easier, they do actually the right thing. Anyway, the chatter is about on the day that Ford pardoned Nixon, about which people feel a lot more um, uh, anger towards him. That same day, evil Knievel tried to jump the Snake River. Oh. So we think of life now as being full of like crazy, crashing coincidences. But evil Knievel tried to jump the Snake River 1,600 feet f uh, across, 500 down. And I guess I remember that, but I've forgotten what a total 
cock up it was. I mean, he basically the rocket ship he was in. First of all, the whole week leading up, there were basically different newscasts about how the different kinds of ways he could die. And he sat and watched these in preparation for his um, launch. He launched and, and like seconds afterwards, the parachute de deployed. The rocket, which was on its ascent, went down into the canyon. He was fine. I think he broke his nose. Although I think in his life he got 433 fractures. Anyway, that happened on the very same day, Ford, uh, pardon Nixon. And there were apparently there were, you know, a variety of different headlines. And in one... I don't know if it was in the same town, but let's just imagine it was for the purposes of this chatter that that one newspaper's headline was Ford pardons Nixon and the another one had a headline that read Evil Knievel fails to die. So, I remember watching that. I wonder if I oh. that's a legit memory or if that's a implanted memory. I do remember watching him try to do that. By the way, but I would um, have been five, maybe. Hmm. There was a story that his first, he was, um, once when he started his um, daredevil career, for those who weren't alive for all of this, basically Evil Knievel used to shoot himself forward at ramps. Some people said he was jumping a motorcycle, but essentially he wiped out so much, it was more like he was just careening into himself. ramps and propelling himself into ramps. Anyways, when he was in construction, he tried to do a wheelie with a um, some piece of construction equipment, knocked out electricity for the whole town of Butte, Montana. So that's how his career started. <laughs> Emily, what is your chatter? My chatter is about a coral reef in Mexico, which got hit by Hurricane Delta in October and is being saved and rebuilt because it is the first natural structure in the world to have an insurance policy. So this is a story about environmental renewal that has like a total legal technical side, which makes it perfect for me. I read about it in the New York Times, the story by Katrine Einhorn and Christopher Flavel. And basically, this state in Mexico called Quintana Roo, which is has um, Tulum and Cancun in it, was really worried about its coral reefs. And so it contracted with an insurance company to buy a policy that would kick in and give money back to the state if the wind speed of a hurricane exceeded 100 knots. So Hurricane Delta did exceed 100 knots. The state of Quintana Roo got $850,000 and used that money to pay for a team of volunteer divers to go down, pick up the broken pieces of the coral reef that had fallen off, and paste them back on with some special paste that they created. This is a way of rebuilding coral reefs. I guess it's like if you lose a tooth or even if you lose like a finger to be really gross, if you put it back in quickly, it can presumably regrow and regenerate. This idea of um, having funds that comes from insurance policies could be used for salt marshes and other kinds of natural structures that that humans also need. And one of the um, reasons why the coral reef was important to the state is that it actually protects the land from surging coastal waves. And so it's not just like a beautiful structure that's important to the ecosystem of the ocean, though it is all those things and provides for lots of species diversity, but it's also integral to the structure of this part of Mexico. So I, in my, um, you know, law hat self, love the idea of an insurance policy for this coral reef. And it seems like it could be a model that other countries and states could follow. Yeah, not to be a downer, but isn't the real problem with coral reefs is just temperature hikes, which you can't really insure against? Yeah, you can't. Someone brought that in up oceans, in the piece. You can't insure against everything, but hurricanes are something that actually you can address, and they do sudden damage. 
but you are being a downer. Um, yeah. All right. My yeah. chatter, my chatter is an upper. So there's a great story in the Washington Post about how plastic surgery is having a boom year because of this perfect confluence of events. There's a people in the plastic surgery getting class are on Zoom calls, and a lot of them are unhappy with how they look. And so there's a lot of people getting Botox and little face little bits of face work because they don't like that. And then there's also this thing where you don't, since people don't actually have to be in the office or don't have to be anywhere, and in fact, or can't be anywhere for weeks at a time, you could get some serious work done and not worry about someone catching you mid-recovery. So, uh, you know, there's no event to go on, no event you're going to have to go to, no wedding you have to show up at. So you can take a few weeks, recover, and then show up with your new face or your new butt or whatever it is you're going to show up with. And and so as a result, there's this enormous boom in plastic surgery, which I think is very, very funny. But wouldn't you want to time it right? Like if you were going to do Botox and you, you got your Botox like three months ago, you're still not seeing anyone. I feel like you would want to gain No, no, it. but the Botox is for Zoom. Oh, it's for the Zoom. The Botox is for Zoom. Like the boob job, yeah, the facelifts. The ass stuff. Fix that. You could also just hide self-view on Zoom. That is a cheaper alternative that I recommend. (laughs) So we're going to take some of your questions. You can put them in Facebook and YouTube. We've got a bunch already. We're going to start with a question that came in from Benjamin Zalisco. How much do the three of you talk when you're not podcasting? How does having so much of your relationship during a filtered, self-conscious podcast affect the nature of your relationships? That's a pretty direct question. I like to get it. We're going to be very self-indulgent this show. So let's talk about it. (laughs) I'll, I'll go first about this. We talk, I mean, Emily, you and I talk frequently. John, you and I talk less. And Although we, we did just we, have a lovely walk recently. We That's did. True. And we've made always, when, whenever we have a chance to be together, because none of us live in the same city, in the same city, we always take the time to be with each other and spend time together. And that, to me, has been genuinely, like, really important it, it really matters. And you, you both came to my 50th birthday party, which was like the last event before lockdown. And it, it remains kind of etched in my memory because, I mean, it was my birthday party, so I guess it would be. But it was just a wonderful occasion to be together. I mean, I think, uh, you know, 90% of our conversation is on the show, I suppose. But it allows the 10% that isn't to, to also be warm and rich and deep for me. So I... Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, you know... I'm so thankful to to have that part outside the show, even though most of it's inside the show. We also all talk to each other when we need to, right? Like we're there's it's like if you if you if you knock, the person is there. Yeah, right. Which has its which is like that ten percent you're talking about, David. It has a <clears throat> knowing that's there is very powerful too. Okay, let's do an audio question. Why don't we do a question from Alan Laird? Hello, this is Alan Laird. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the USA, and my question is for John, but it would be fun to hear from Emily and David. If you could interview anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Uh, so I'd want to talk to Jesus um, and, and then pretty much just listen. Excellent choice. <laughs> The dead or alive Emily? threw me. I had yeah. a good, like, alive question, and now I don't know what to say because it's so prosaic and if you include dead people. <laughs> all right. What is it? Go ahead. Well, this is not including all the dead people. This is alive people. And I guess also I didn't try to think outside the United States, but I would like to have a real honest interview with Bill Barr, our attorney general. 
Like a real interview where I got to find out what he was thinking. You mean where you'd give him sodium pentothal or where it was off the record or you mean just with enough time? Where he just trusts me and it's off the record and I, yeah, and I get to hear like what he was really thinking and doing and like about the decisions he made. Jesus or Bill Farr? <laughs> well, Jesus I know. I told you it was that's really tough. That's hard. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. I, I got to think on that one. I um, I mean, I'll give my prosaic answer too, which is prosaic because I always give this answer, which is Ulysses S. Grant because he's my favorite American and I just loved reading him. And so I think I would love hearing him talk. And he was such a self-aware, ironic, funny person that I bet he would have been a great, great conversationalist i'm going to continue to get questions which are about us so from ryan moore how did you three meet how are we introduced because i i remember distinctly meeting each of you i remember but that separately well john and i started at slate in the same month remember yeah so emily and i met at the slate retreat in newsweek offices in new york at some little it feels like it was some little little bar they had set up for us or something anyway in the room we were in was a conference room in which (laughs) Every, it felt like three feet, maybe it was four. There was a column that was the size of a VW bug. It was basically a room full of columns. And then there were little places where we would sit at tables and try to have talks. But in the talks, you had to go like this because you are always slaloming around the, uh, around the columns. So I remember that we were both there at the same time, although I was writing my book. So I wasn't, that was like a, I was there, but I wasn't really there. And then, David, you and I met. Yeah, it was I, before you, like, officially started, right? Right. And, David, I think we, did we, uh, whether or not we may have met beforehand, the, 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 the real meeting was at the, in the Bob Inglis, uh, Ernest, Holling, Ernest Fritz Hollings race in 1998 in various parts of South Carolina. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we were both covered. Yeah, we covered that race. It was, that was, it was great. That was really important to me in all kinds of ways, meeting you. Some great stories I did came out of that. Yeah, I, that was awesome. And Emily, you and I met. We had a, a mutual friend. You don't remember this. You only remember this because I told you about this. Oh, okay. Why don't you tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jacob hired me, and then I moved to Washington, where you were the deputy editor of Slate and like the whatever of uh, the Washington office, Maine Poobah. And I came in and we like went out and had coffee. It was cold. You were wearing like a blue knit cap and you just seemed so skeptical of me. I just remember being really sure that Jacob had hired me and you were just like, okay, (laughs) whatever. Do you remember that office? Like it didn't have any framed anything on the wall. There was like a Israeli poster of like a carrot that was also sort of a penis in like, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, that was Avi Zendelman, our intern, in whose dad was a post. public health, a sex public health doctor, had given us that. It was some Israeli STD uh, health poster. I don't, yeah, I don't know why I was there. But yeah, I walked into that office, and at that point, there happened to be no women working out of that DC office, except for the poor intern who was a little beleaguered, and I, it it uh, it lacked a, it lacked a woman's touch, shall we say? Was that the office with the chair museum? No. Yes, Yo, yeah. yeah, it was. It was. M Street. It was. Oh, my yeah. God. Okay. That office was... Yeah. Uh, oh, God, it was sad. Um, all right. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see... 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Let's do a, a, just a couple more as we bring this home. So how about uh, an audio question from Daniel Fabiano? Hi, this is Daniel Fabiano from Toronto. My question is, as listeners, we know that David and Emily and John enjoy a good metaphor, especially John. What metaphor describes how each of you prepares for an episode of the Gab Fest? I sometimes feel like a squirrel, like a squirrel eating nuts and like chewing on them and trying to stuff them into my cheeks so that maybe I'll remember them. Yeah. That's good. That's a good one, Emily. I like like that. That's good. I like that. Yeah. All right. One more audio question from Cynthia Lerner. Hi, this is Cynthia Lerner from Northbrook, Illinois. My question is, have you ever cried during the Gab Fest? And if yes, why? Tears of joy, sadness, relief, any kind. Thank you. I think, I think I, I'm sure I have more. I think I have more than Do you I remember have. doing it? I don't. I do. I remember I think you doing have it. it. I remember oh. you doing it, Emily. Sure. Like in the con. I mean, I remember you. Oh, right. Sort I of just know. outside the show. I don't think it was on the show because I was such an asshole. Oh, right. We had a fight once. So, you know, when I. I, don't know if I actually. Oh, sorry, Emily. Yeah, you go, please. I remember. Well, it was once I think about my dad. I, once about Anne, once about you guys, and I think once about my kids, who actually are basically is almost a little bit older than the Gap Fest, and they actually happen to be standing behind me. So oh. that's one of them. Look! Oh, oh. special oh, treat! We've got the yeah. whole Dickerson family so, tonight. That is so great. They, Hi, Bryce and Nan. We're just and little Nan. little babies when we started, and now they're full human adults. Um. So and, gap um, adults. So anyway, thanks guys. <laughs> we all started this when we had young children. Um, all of our children have now grown up. They are I guess I have the youngest. I have a thirteen-year-old, a twelve-year-old, excuse me, and then <laughs> uh, and then Emily, you and I have twenty-year-olds, or maybe 
your eldest is 21. Um, 20. So, but they've all grown. They've been basically gap as children. How has that affected us? How, has they, have, they, have they changed our political views? My children at this point often know more about politics than I do. Find it somewhat dismaying that anyone would listen to their mother talk about politics or really pretty much anything. But they have definitely challenged my views because, um, especially on questions of economic policy, um, zoning is a hot topic in my house. They have really taught me a huge amount. Seeing seeing questions through their eyes, seeing and explaining things when you suddenly or when you start seeing yourself talking through the way they would see you or and just like that whole set of mirrors affects me a, a lot and then also debates and discussions with them as they've gotten older you know you really you like you you can't wing it the way you can on the show you know you have to uh you it's a lot it has to be a lot more buttoned up because they're not such accommodating um interlocutors uh, the way you guys are and i think well, also they have an impatience right often like the impatience of youth and a willingness to challenge things that we've just become a nerd to which is like really necessary and adds urgency it also makes me think about the stakes like amazingly to what they're gonna what the world is gonna be like that they will be left uh which sometimes can be quite overwhelming when you're doing certain kinds of reporting. I mean, it doesn't happen so much when I think about what we talk about, but but that certainly affects the way uh, I look at the world now. All right, that is a wrap for our 15th anniversary celebration. I'm slightly buzzed and very uh, teary. <laughs> the Live Gab Fest was produced by Faith Smith, Jocelyn Frank, and Bridget Dunlap with help from Britt Pooley. Our managing producer is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcast for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Listeners, we asked you to give us incredible politically themed cocktails in honor of our 15th anniversary and you delivered we are excited to share some of our favorites at slate.com slash cocktail if you are not a slate plus member you cannot see that uh, website but so all the more reason to join slate plus so emily tell us a little bit about your cocktail you don't need to do, do the whole thing but just give us a briefing so I was having trouble coming up with this, and then I remembered this wonderful, (laughs) exquisite moment from the summer before last summer uh, when such things were still possible when I went on this group camping trip in Maine. It was a car camping trip, but it was in this lovely state park, and I was with two of my college housemates who I adore, and they were both more organized than me, naturally, and one of them brought along all the makings for this delicious elderberry rum cocktail. I don't think I'd ever had elderberry rum. It had sage in it and other special lovely ingredients. And what I mostly remember about this, well, so it was totally delicious and refreshing. And we were drinking it as the sun was going down, you know, over the pine trees in Maine. But also um, Chani, my housemate who made this drink, had brought uh, these 
glass jars to drink it in. And I had only brought like one, you know, plastic mug. And so I was also impressed that she had exactly the right thing to be drinking in it. I actually love drinking in things like jam jars. I like that as an extra uh, perk. So I just raise a glass to the idea of a cocktail that you could drink with your friends on a camping trip and everyone would be close together and enjoying each other's company and not worried. And I dearly, dearly hope that such things are possible this coming summer. But if not, I look forward to returning to that um, spot in Maine as soon as we possibly can. All right. That's Emily's summer freedom cocktail. John, what is your cocktail? Uh, my cocktail is, um, well, first it has to be, there's a small preamble, which is there is nothing more boring than a person who sends back a martini and there is no more, nothing more boring than sending back a martini. You mean because you two don't distinct like it? Categories. Sending it back like it's deficient. Because you don't okay. like it, right. Because it's been I poorly see. made. It's been poorly made. So these this is this is the height of boredom if you do this. You are a boorish and boobish person if you do this. Having said that, there is nothing worse than a poorly made martini. And there is this thing in American life where when you order a martini, which is, as everybody knows, is gin, um, the people who sometimes make it seek to assert their personality by adding stuff to it. Because apparently gin by itself... So the first problem is vermouth. They, they add too much vermouth. Um, some people would say they add vermouth at all, but that's... You, you, but wait, isn't that a martini, this gin and vermouth? If you don't want the vermouth, but, isn't it a different drink? It's just straight yeah. gin. But that's fine. That's student martini. But then the other thing they add is 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 olive juice, olive bits. They they think somehow when you said you wanted a martini that you want a dirty martini. And over the course of the time they've been in the, the martini making business, they have added more stuff. So there's like an old shoe, a tire, all of which is in the hopes of making a dirty martini. So my drink is called the restraint, which means... Put cold gin, get it as cold as you possibly can, in a glass that you've also tried to get as cold as you possibly can. If you're going to add vermouth, add a little, a very restrained portion of vermouth, and then refrain and restrain yourself from adding anything else. Don't add olive juice. Don't add more than one olive. Don't add olive bits. Don't add, just restrain yourself from adding all that other claptrap to the martini. The restraint. John's prose here is magnificent also. My cocktail, which was made, I proposed pre-election. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.